Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy. As I look back and have a listen to some of the highlights from previous shows throughout the year. In this episode, Danny Garavelli, Les Wood, Nicola Smith, Thomas Quinn, Rebecca Norman and Ed Needham all choose a book they would recommend to anyone. This would be a book that you would recommend to everyone and it's uh, Jenny Fagan's The Panopticon. I think I read it quite soon after it came out, immediately fell in love with it and the thing I fell in love with is the main character whose voice is just so distinctive and her name's Anais Hendricks and she is a teenager, 15 I think, in a care home who has never known her parents, she doesn't even know who her parents were. And the thing about her is she's so simultaneously precocious and difficult and defiant and vulnerable and self-destructive. And she's just, you put the book down and her voice is still in your head for a long time afterwards, yeah. And they've just recently, I think there's just been recently a stage adaptation. Yes, I went to see it, yes, I did go and see it, yeah. How did that match up to your expectations, given the fact you love the book? It was excellent, it was really good, but I just just think if there are books that you love, sometimes there is no matching up to them. I don't think it was any fault of the production, I just think that it can... it can be so firmly lodged in your head, can't it, that what that person looks like and what that person sounds like, that you know, that it takes a, li- a little bit away from it, I think. But it was very well done production, it was. I suppose there's always that idea of, is the book better than the film? Mm-hmm. The answer's obviously yes, but uh, yeah. <laughs> there's very few, because I always remember uh, taking one of my daughters to see, is it Jodie Piku? And she'd written, it's my sister's keeper, and my mm-hmm. daughter loved the book. And then when the film came out, she was absolutely devastated because they changed the ending, and the ending is the real... Right. There's a real twist, and, and she couldn't. She was only about fifteen or sixteen. She couldn't quite understand, and as a result, the film was a disaster because all the fans who'd loved the book felt betrayed. By yeah, it. I, I, I don't think you should mess with the endings. I mean, I realise that there are things that you can't translate from a book easily to a, f- a film, or I don't think you should mess with authors' endings or the. And do you find find yourself recommending a lot of books to friends, or or vice versa? Is it, is it one of those things that you read something you're you want to say, for example, this book you should read this or Oh yes, what books all the time? My house is full of books I haven't returned to people. <laughs> but then again, other people have books they haven't returned to yeah. me, so it's fair enough. I think, and as I said, I think social media has helped that a lot. I mean, you know, you, Nicola Sturgeon going on and recommending what her books are. I just think that's got the chat going, and people. I, I suppose it depends who you follow in it. But in in my wee circle, yeah. uh, we talk about mm-hmm. books a lot. So um, yeah, I love to hear other people's excitement over something that they've just read as well. I suppose that's the, the good thing about Twitter, for example, is you can actually frame almost the conversation that you want to hear. So, for example, if it is just book chat, you can kind of cut out the other stuff, the white noise of all the negativity, if you just want to have people that are kind of passionate about literature, for example. Or... Yeah. Well, because I need it for work, I have to pretty much have... But, but yes, you, you can have your wee circle, definitely, of people who love the same things as you, definitely. Yeah. And I'd ask you, you know, right at the start, about whether you thought... Of, about writing fiction, but do you think sometimes, obviously, what you deal with is, is facts, non-fiction, and but sometimes can fiction almost tell the story? For example, the, the, that book could be told maybe as a non-fiction, but fiction can sometimes work as well in telling the story of, of something harrowing, but in, in a way that engages people. Oh yes, you know? definitely, and I suppose that creates a distance as well from the story, doesn't it? By fictionalising it, which makes it more acceptable to tell the story, and also sometimes you don't know every aspect of the story, so you would to tell it at all, it would need to be fictionalised. I mean, what kind of a reader are you? Do you have a specific... Are you quite open in terms of 
you'll just read anything or is there certain things that you would read or wouldn't read in terms of genre or anything like that? I'm relatively open, I think. I'm limited a little bit because I review a lot, so a lot of my reading time's taken up with what people have asked me to review, mm-hmm. so I sometimes find myself reviewing things that I probably wouldn't have read otherwise, But and sometimes that can be... You think, oh, I could be reading something else, but at the same time, sometimes that opens you up to something you might not have picked up naturally off the shelf and thought that would be for me, and it, and you find that it is really, really good and you've enjoyed it, so maybe it widens your horizons a little bit as well. Yeah. Is that a pressure when you're reviewing? Because obviously there's an author sitting there somewhere waiting for your review, and, or do you just have to be honest in, in, in terms of how it makes you feel? Uh, is that a pressure? Yeah, I mean, I have never been in a position where... I've hated a book so much I couldn't find anything good to say about it. So, um, luckily, so far, so um, I don't know what I would do. Yeah, no, it is really, isn't it? I don't know what I would do if if I did. A, no, I think you would. I think you do have to be honest. I don't think there's any point in reviewing if you're not going to be. Yeah. I, don't, I think you just have to try not to think too much about the other person at the end. Sometimes a great notion by Ken Casey. I just, I just love this book. I would say I'd recommend it to everyone because it's my favourite book. I think, but it's a book that if you'd asked me to come on this podcast maybe five or ten years ago, I would maybe have put this book into the one I would you couldn't pay me to read again uh, category. And the reason for that is I think I started this book about three or four times, and I just really struggled with the first hundred pages or so of this book. And part of the reason for that is the way he writes it. I should say that the book is about um, a family of loggers in Oregon who are basically busting a union strike. So there's a strike by these union guys who are trying to get some more money because they're working less because of mechanisation, I suppose, of the logging industry. And there's this family of independent loggers who um, are basically saying, stuff it, we're just going to keep going with what we're doing. We're going to supply the trees to, to whoever needs it. So they're busting the strike. But the way he writes and the thing that makes it so difficult in the first hundred or so pages is that he changes point of view all the time and he'll do that within a paragraph or within a sentence that you don't know who's, who, whose point of view we're we actually seeing here. And it's not until you get into the rhythm of that and how he's done it that you then become comfortable and you, you then kind of go along with the flow and it becomes easier, much, much easier to read after that first hundred pages or so. And it's quite a an incredibly tricky thing he's done by doing this. As I say, within a paragraph, you can have four different points of view all at the same time, and he never tells you who, the, who they are. He'll put them in brackets, or he'll put them in italics, or parentheses in some way or other, and you have to work out for yourself, who is this that's, that's thinking this? Who, who's, whose point of view is this? And as I say, I started about three or four times, I said, this, this book's just terrible. But something always kind of drew me back to having a go at it again, and I think it's partly the kind of, some of his writing is incredibly poetic. If you get the chance to even read the first page of this book, where he describes the, a river running down from the mountains, it is just fantastic, fantastic writing. And the, the story itself is a kind of, there's a Cain and Abel aspect to it as well. Um, there's two, the two brothers in the family who kind of hate each other, well, stepbrothers, they kind of hate each other. And there's betrayals, and one of the brothers had slept with the other brother's mother, which is a kind of, Strange thing going on as well. So he'd, he'd slept with her, so that's why the other brother hates him. And he ends up sleeping with the first brother's wife to, for revenge. So there's all sorts of revenge stuff going on as well. I was curious of, you know, that way, because some people either, you either start a book and you'll, you'll finish it or you'll come back to it. But I was just curious the fact that you, 
you gave it so many chances and didn't give yeah. up on it. Yeah, I know, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. I think it was the kind of challenge of the thing. You know, it was a determination to to get through it and get to the get to the end. But I would recommend anybody who is reading it if you get past the first hundred pages, it then becomes this big sprawling epic book. And I think it, it probably is a contender for the great American novel. It's way better than Cuckoo's Nest as a book. Yeah, because people people will be familiar with him because of of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which has obviously been a publishing phenomenon. Yeah, I think this is his masterpiece. And the thing is, it's hard to get. It's um, it's out of print now, I think. I have a really battered old copy on the bookshelf, and it's, it's fallen apart, so I tried to find a new copy, and I think I had to get, a, get it come from America or something like that to get a, another copy. But it is a, it's a Penguin Classics edition I've got for it now, which is a nice, fair copy, but it's, it's a big book, so it's seven or 800 pages. It's interesting you said, you know, that uh, get past the first 100 pages, because I found that with... I remember reading The Name of the Rose, and I always say that to people, but again, I mean, I love that book, and, and I do enjoy those first hundred pages, but there, something does click into place round about that, that stage, and then after that, it never stops, and I can understand why people would maybe give up before then. I think it's it's just getting into the rhythm of the thing, I think, and it's quite good to read books that are a bit challenging like that as well, and don't get me wrong, I, I love reading a, a straightforward book as much as anybody. Um, and there are some writers that are just so good at, at, at sucking you into to stories just with the plain, good old-fashioned storytelling. But sometimes it is good to kind of make yourself work a wee bit harder just to, to get into the story. And I would definitely say sometimes a great notion is is definitely worth the effort. It was also made into a film as well, actually. Paul Newman directed it and starred in it with him and Henry Fonda. The chance to watch it, it's, it's a pretty good adaptation of what's probably a difficult book to adapt, actually. Yes, I adore Nigel Slater. I think he can do no wrong. Anything he touches, cooks, writes, presents, I just think I'm just sucked in and I just love him so much. So Toast is the biography of his life when he was young, so in his sort of pre-teen years through to maybe his early 20s. It was sort of following from his early life and then his mum passed away and his dad remarried and it's all these different points in his life that he remembered through food. So he always remembers how his mum, whatever would happen, would burn toast in the morning, constantly, always burning their toast. And there's different scenes in the book where Nigel is desperate to have parmesan, wants to have spaghetti with a tomato sauce because Italian food is becoming all the rage. But his dad thinks it smells like sick, it smells disgusting, it all gets chucked away. <laughs> Awfully, you just waited and known that actually parmesan is one of the best cheeses. And it's just how Nigel has related different parts of his life to food. So when his mum passes away, and he just speaks and writes so eloquently that he said, a marshmallow is the closest thing to a kiss. And there's parts in the book where his dad would leave two marshmallows on his bedside table when he was crying because of the death of his mum. So it was just so beautiful to then bring food into personal your personal experiences and how actually you're right and how it can just evoke feelings and to have that in a book I thought is just so powerful as well and he just writes so wonderfully because he's got an observer a column in the observer talking about his food but you can just tell whenever he writes it it's just it's just beautiful just love it just love him anything he touches <laughs> incredible because I haven't I haven't read anything by him but I, I think kind of what you were saying there that I suppose there's loads of people that maybe write about food but then also write about it in terms of trying to apply it to their life or their emotions or whatever but it's a skill for someone that can then elevate it to that point where 
I think it was also the book was turned into a film. Yes, and, and it's a play as well now. So you know, there, there must be there must just be some natural talent he's got that kind of elevates mm-hmm. him above other people who write about food. Yeah, and he's so calming as well that my husband and I, when we were first sort of dating, we would watch his early series on Channel Four, Simple Food or Simple Suppers or something like that, and even just listening to him speak. It's just hypnotic, so I suppose he played a part in our relationship as well. But I just I thought everything about Nigel Slater and the way he writes and the way he cooks is just it's just great. And the fact you can put it into words without it being a horrible recipe, or see when you go on these recipe blogs and it's someone that does a full spiel about why I don't know scrambled eggs mean so much to them. But then when you read Nigel Slater's story of it, you think, oh my gosh, yes, you know what you're doing. <laughs> and I suppose once I suppose it's like every writer once you once you're convinced by them and once you're you're hooked then, as you say, they can do no wrong after that. Yeah, uh I love him. Whenever there's, if he has a sort of couple of TV shows on for Christmas, I think, oh, I'm definitely going to record that and watch it. And then whenever there's an episode he does with Nigella, it's just gold dust. The ultimate TV (laughs) cooking personality duo. They're just unstoppable. So was he a was he a chef or cook before he became a writer, or is is that is he kind of fallen into that as a result of writing about food? Yeah, uh-huh. so he has cooking shows and stuff like that, and he and in the book tours it talks about when he went to catering college as well. So he definitely started with food first, and then just wrote the biography. And obviously, I mentioned it in a film. You've mentioned it's turned into a play. Did you watch the film? Yes, uh-huh. Helena Bonham Carter plays his stepmom, and just the actors that are playing. Young Nigel are just so close to him as well because there's a couple of pictures in the book and the cover as well as him sitting at a, a dinner table. And yeah, it's just, I think I had to try and find it online because I couldn't find it anywhere. I need to see the play, but it was all stopped because of the pandemic. And then you think you could watch it online, but I missed out at the time. But I'd just, I'd love to see it again. Just seeing it brought to life. It's not quite the same as the book. There's a few wee bits missing and there's just certain parts that Nigel just writes so emotively that it just, doesn't always quite come across on screen. I sometimes think, unless he was actually going to play himself yeah. at eight years old, it's not going to be quite the same. And is it a, a book, obviously, that's one you would recommend to anyone? Is it a book that you've read more than once or, get, you know, dip back into? Yeah, I uh-huh, have, because it's quite a small book as well. So you can just flick back to a little bit that you really enjoy. There's a scene where he's at Catering College and there's this really, really amazing top-end restaurant that he desperately wants to eat at. So he saves all his money and goes with, someone to have food and then the waiter comes over and says oh what would you like to order any panics and order steak tartare not realizing actually he's about to order raw meat to eat but it's just how he had to suffer through it and I just love little bits like that so I'll maybe dip back in to read a little section that just makes me laugh or I have to avoid the bits about his mum dying because it's just so devastating and tragic so that's the bit that I'll avoid reading again yeah, because it's that's... too sad like skip past It's, I struggled with this, I really did, because I didn't want to make it too political, essentially, but I've landed on 11.22.63, which is a Stephen King book that I read on holiday about a year ago, maybe two years ago, and it's a fantastic book. It's just a thriller, it's not, you know, in a very different way to John Green in Harry Potter, it grabbed me, because you start reading this book and it's about spoilers. It's about this guy who figures out how to time travel in a very specific way. There's kind of a universal supernatural anomaly. And when he goes through this door, he steps out in 1958. And that's the only way he can time travel. It's between that point and 
2011, I think it is. And he goes back to 1958 and he just starts exploring this world where he's completely out of time and eventually he decides that the best thing he can do with this power is stop the Kennedy assassination. And first of all, I absolutely adore alternate history books. They're fascinating to me, just picking a point in time and going, what if it didn't happen like that? And that happens towards the end of this novel, but for the entirety of this novel, I was gripped by it. It was one of those books where I was reading it at the dinner table, and my mum was telling me, Thomas, stop reading that book, you're at dinner, it's rude. And, but it's just the kind of book that, it's a very cliche thing to say, but I couldn't put it down. It grabs you from the first few chapters, and you're just stuck in it, stuck in this world, constantly wanting to know what's about to happen, whether or not you'll save Kennedy, there's... He explores the idea that maybe it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald and he goes through this entire time period. He's going back, I think he spends about 10 years in the past overall because he goes back and he spends however long just exploring, however long making absolutely sure that it was just Lee Harvey Oswald that did this and then another five years to go back and actually stop the assassination. Because obviously that is the title of the book and it's the American way of writing the day, yeah, 1120 uh-huh. to 63. When I, was, I did a wee bit of checking up on the book and apparently Stephen King said he first had the idea I think back in 1971 but yeah. it took him about another 30 or 40 years before he actually yeah, before I think he might have read one or two other books in that intervening <laughs> period sure. but it is interesting I mean you say you like alternate histories so there was a The Man in the High Castle for example which then became a, a series on, on Amazon I don't know if you've I've read that but again it's an alternative history of, of World War Two. what mm-hmm. happens if the, the Allies don't win the war and, and what happens, the impact in America and elsewhere and I think you're right, it's just that sometimes it's just one pivotal moment in yeah, history, exactly. what if, if that changes but it doesn't change in isolation because then mm-hmm. everything changes Yeah, and I think even with this book and what grabs me about those books generally is the idea of changing something and having unintended consequences of what when you are trying to do a good thing like, this guy goes out of the past and he just wants to stop the Kennedy assassination. He thinks it'll be a good thing. Stop a man dying. That's kind of the quintessential good thing. But he comes back to the present and it's a nuclear winter because Kennedy didn't escalate the war in Vietnam or starts with nuclear exchanges between India and Pakistan. And it's all the kind of ripple effect of Kennedy not dying that day. Because even though he tries to do a good thing, it ends up being bad in the long run. And he, for him personally even, he comes back into the future, he sees this awful, awful world, but he's found love in the past. He's found someone that he's fallen in love with. He doesn't want to leave that behind, but he knows ultimately that he has to reset it because every time you go through and back, it resets time. And he knows ultimately that he has to, but he doesn't want to because he's found someone he loves and he, he has this personal dilemma at the end of, is history worth the woman I love? And that was that was a fascinating thing even to read because it's one of those things that seems like a really easy decision, but you can understand that when you're making that decision, it's a lot less easy. Because it's one of those things, and, and probably as you're older, there'll probably be a lot of people, probably my age, or, or, that could sit and, and think back on their own life and, and various twists and turns along the way. If I had done A instead of mm-hmm. B, would I be here? And I suppose that's it depends where you are at a certain point when you think yeah, that. You don't want to have, have those regrets. And as you say, when you go back, he's trying to do something on a grand scale, but on a personal level, he has to he's got that yeah. dilemma as well uh-huh. of what he does if as you say, when he meets somebody and yeah. wants you know, falls in love with them. And I think there is this kind of inherent curiosity for everyone, really. What if it wasn't this? 
what if my life had just like a tiny little turn? What if we? What if my family hadn't moved to Qatar? How different would my life be now? Who would I know? What would I've been doing over those seven years in Glasgow instead of Doha? And I think for everyone, really, that is. I think that's kind of the fundamentally interesting thing about alternate history is everyone wants to know what is possible and what could have been possible. So my choice for this was Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Probably not one that I ever thought I would recommend to anyone. I first read it about two years ago um, when I was living in Georgia and I was unemployed and very bored, so I read a lot of books. But I think, I mean, it completely threw me off. It wasn't what I thought at all, I think, because obviously there's been, you know, films and stuff made, Frankenstein's, The Monster, and I just wasn't expecting it at all. What I found interesting, again, when I was just doing a wee bit of research into it, was it was published in 1818, but she Mm -hmm. was only 20. Mm-hmm. When she wrote that, which you know was remarkable in itself, but the fact it's kind of stood the test of time. I I mean I don't know if that is because partly because of her life because I know she ran away with a married man and when she was like sixteen and then you know wrote this amazing book and there's been loads of different adaptations and it's been studied and I think I just kind of thought I knew what it was about and. I mean, do you think people would be surprised, given how the idea of Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, as you say, it's it's totally embedded into popular culture, Mm -hmm. but everybody's probably got the exact same image of what they think of Frankenstein, and if they actually read the book, it would, as you say, it would be completely different to what their expectations are. Well, I mean, I didn't even know that Frankenstein wasn't the monster, like, I just, I think you do just assume that that is his name, but you never, he never even has a name. Frankenstein's the scientist but mm. yeah it just it, it totally threw me off you just get so much more of the monster his perspective and his thoughts and his feelings and and you know films or whatever that I've kind of seen bits and pieces of and he's just this you know he can't speak and he's just grunting and groaning and he brings him to life and, and that's kind of it but he's actually very smart which I didn't expect. Because one of the things, and I've said this a few times, depending on people's choices, again, it, you know, I'd mentioned it was published in 1818. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's amazing that you, you can be reading a book 200 years later and it still captivates you, it still resonates with you the way it did 200 years ago when people first read it. Yeah, that's kind of well, that's kind of what I thought at the time as well when I was sitting on an army base in Georgia reading this novel from 1818 and still sitting there being like oh my god this I can't believe this is happening and this has existed for 200 years and I've never actually read it until now. What made you pick it up? Did you just find it at the bookshop or was it just you know because obviously if it's not something you, you would normally have, have sort of gravitated towards? Uh, well I used to be well I was, I was unemployed so I was quite I'm bored quite a lot and I used to go to Barnes and Noble and they would always have like two for ten dollars it was always the classics um, so I ended up reading well, I read that and I read Wuthering Heights and um, I ended up reading quite a few things so yeah there was no real reason around it well, it was in the deal but you know, I was I was so glad that I read it 
it just it just totally shocked me. And again, it's just not it's not how it's been portrayed in, in films and in popular culture. Do you think as well, you know, when you see in bookshops here, people maybe shy away from them sometimes because they they think they're you know whether they they're intimidated by them. But actually, there's loads of books that people would probably enjoy more if they just took that chance. Yeah, I think there's probably an element of this is old, it's boring. Like I think that's probably what a lot of people think, but I tend not to really read many like contemporary books, I suppose. I prefer things that are like historical thrillers or fiction classics and I think well Wuthering Heights as well was another one that is just not it just wasn't what I thought at all. But yeah, I think there's an element of oh it's probably gonna be boring. I suppose it's the, once you go over, because sometimes you do have to, either the style mm. of the writing or sometimes the language, because it's of its time in terms of language, but once you get past that, so, sometimes you can only have some really brilliant books, which is why they're still being read 200 years later. Definitely. Yeah, I think you just need to give it a chance sometimes. The book that you've chosen is Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is a, yes. a classic graphic novel. Yes, well, I, I covered graphic novels a lot in uh, Strong Words, but I think this is a, this has got to be contender for the, the greatest graphic novel of all time. I've given it to a lot of people as a gift, to people of all ages. I've given it to my daughter, who is uh, currently uh, 16 and not given to reading books at all, and she, uh, she swears she read it. But uh, I think it's, it has so much going for it. You know, people don't know it. It's a graphic novel about a man in New York in the 80s, I think, who decides he's going to interview his father for a graphic novel project. And his father was in Auschwitz and in Poland, I think, before he was arrested in a ghetto, before he was arrested and taken into the camps, as, as, and as was his mother. And it's his, his attempt to interview his father, with whom he has a very difficult relationship, about those years of before the war and then trying to evade the Gestapo during the war, being in a, a ghetto and then being in Auschwitz. There's, I mean, there's so much in it. It's this history, biography. It's very modern because of the, the graphic novel aspect of it. It's very visual. It's great storytelling and really moving, but also this him trying to come to terms with his father, who's such a difficult individual to get on with, um, because he's so he's really mean. He's um, not particularly um, sort of open, understandably, about what he's done. You know, he's a very jaundiced view of human nature and relationships. So it's quite a sort of friction between the the interviewer and the the interviewee, the father. And obviously, the great sort of thing about Mouse as well is that it re- represents the characters as animals. So I think the Jews are mice and the Gestapo are... I think they're cats. I think they're cats and the poles are pigs. It's a fantastic sort of way of personalising it and telling individual stories, but also putting it in, a, in this context that is completely unique by doing them as, uh, as animals. It's extraordinary. Children should be made to read it at school. Because I often find, uh, whenever I'm doing the podcast, there's always one book in, in any guest's choice, which is the one which I haven't read that I want to read. And this is a, a book which I'm, I'm aware of, but I've never read it. Because I've watched, remember watching a documentary about Art Spiegelman, and it's, it's just, it was a fascinating, it's a fascinating documentary. And I think, as you say, I think it's, it's an important book that people should, te- should read in terms of, obviously, the history, but in a way, 
and I, I'm not sure for me it was whether it was just, you know, I'm not really, probably from when I stopped reading comics as a child, I haven't really gone back to graphic novels. But again, I know people who are very much into graphic novels and are very much, they are a literary genre. And I think people who don't read them are maybe too easy to, or too quick to dismiss them yes. as comics, which they are most definitely not. Yes, I completely agree. You know, I mean, I think if people, if they're not exposed to a graphic novel, they're, they're very difficult to get them to pick one up, you know, because like you say, they assume they're either for children or they assume that they are something to do with superheroes and, you know, sort of Marvel comics and that kind of thing. Uh, but they're not, you know, you know, a lot of them are absolutely extraordinary. You know, the quality of characterization, the quality of artwork, the quality of, you know, structure and plot and the emotion that they pack in, into them is, uh, is incredible. And this... You know, so Mouse is just, math. I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing like it. And so I think it's just as a method of, you know, just really simple education to those people who aren't familiar with that period of history. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily original and accessible uh, way of uh, telling that particular historical period. You mentioned you'd given it as a present for your daughter to read, and you said she said she read it. What was her What was her reaction to it then? Well, she said she said uh, you know she said she really enjoyed reading it. It was positive, but uh, you know she's uh, I didn't I didn't sit her down and ask her questions about it. You know I didn't I didn't make her do a, a mock uh, GCSE <laughs> on it. So it's entirely possible she might have looked at it for five minutes and said, "Yeah, that's enough. I think I can uh, I think I can wing it." And uh, if it makes the old man happy, then I'll say, "Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Great." Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.